Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Golden, and welcome to Making Markets. This show explores the psychology and structure that make up markets all over the world. Each week, we speak to experts about a different market so you can see what actually happens when money changes hands. From mainstream stock and bond markets to esoteric niches like vineyards, antique art, and crypto, we explain the transactions that underpin our economy. Making Markets is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can find all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources at joincolossus.com. Eric Golden is the CEO of Canopy Capital. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Canopy Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be construed or relied on as investment, legal, or tax advice. Clients of Canopy Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast, including positions that are contrary to the opinions offered. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Nick the Carney Lentz. It's not every day you talk to a UFC fighter turned trader, and this conversation is both intense and insightful. We start by talking about Nick's journey from a difficult childhood to a UFC career and his philosophy on fighting, parenting, and life. We then cover his move to trading derivatives full-time and his approach to position sizing, risk management, and more. This was a different kind of episode, but one I thoroughly enjoyed, and I hope you do too. Nick, thank you for joining me today. I've never spoken to a UFC fighter, (laughs) so this is a pretty cool opportunity. There's probably no better place to start than how one gets into ultimate fighting and the career path into getting into such an intense and brutal sport? It's a long story, but I'll try to shorten it up a little bit. I don't want to be negative at all, but it's part of the story. And as I was growing up, when I was very young, my parents separated and I went with my mother and my dad went the other way. Eventually she got remarried and she married a bad person. And so he drained on our whole family. And that led to her losing her jobs, that led to us losing all our money, and that led to us having to move to a really poor neighborhood in a bad area and deal with that for the beginning of my life. Starting life like that, it was difficult. When I was 13 years old, I had decided that I was no longer going to live like that. And so I had an abusive stepfather. My mom, she was abused herself, so she wasn't really functioning correctly. And I convinced them that I would take a trip to see my father. And I had no intention of going back. And so my plan when 13 years old was I was going to show up on my father's door and say, hey, guess what? I'm not going back to Texas. I'm moving to Minnesota with you. You take me. Or when you put me back on the airplane, I'm just going to get off and go wherever I'm going to go. I had had enough of that life. And thankfully, he's my father. And he's one of my best friends now. And he took me in. And... It was a turning point in my life. I went from being in the ghetto to being in the middle-class suburban neighborhood. I had almost no education. I didn't go to school, really. I was very behind in school. And so my father inherited this kid who he believed was intelligent and stuff. But I was reading at a first grade level. I had no math skills. I had no skills in anything. And I was depressed. I was a tough kid. If any kid messed with me, I would beat him up because I was used to fighting a grown man my whole life. So I had no problem in that realm. But deep down, I was as insecure as a person could be. And so in a rehabilitation way, my father decided that he would try to get me into wrestling. 
I don't know if you know this, but in Texas, there really is no wrestling. But in Minnesota, people start wrestling from birth. And I don't mean that like figuratively. It's literally. They literally start wrestling from birth. So I came in in high school and I'm like, hey, guys, can I wrestle? And they're like, get out of here, bro. You're not even in shape. What are you doing? There's no way you can do this. And so I walked in the wrestling room and I caught the worst ass whooping of my life. But I kept coming back. And then by the end of the year, I started to win some matches. The next year, I became the team captain. And then by the end of that year, I was one of the best in my division. By my junior year, I was one of the best in the state. And then by my senior year, I was one of the best in the country and one of the best wrestlers in Minnesota and my school's history. There were many parts of that. One, wrestling was the first time that anyone actually gave a crap about me. Before I was this ghetto kid, And now I started wrestling and all of a sudden I had friends and all of a sudden I had some attention and my teachers were more willing to help me with my schoolwork. And all of a sudden I wasn't behind in everything. People started to recognize that maybe there was some talent there. Maybe there was some intelligence there that they didn't see before. That made me feel good. It made me feel better about my life. Slowly, it's like, well, what am I going to do with my life? I had started to get better at school. I learned everything very fast and I qualified to go to college and everything. And so I decided to go to University of Minnesota, which had the best wrestling program in the country at the time. And so I got to the wrestling program and I loved wrestling, but I never really clicked with wrestlers. They're very intense people. The coaches are very intense. And one thing that I don't respond well to is intensity in my direction from my childhood. So I just don't respond to that type of atmosphere. If I'm not doing something well, you're welcome to tell me that I'm a piece of shit and I need to work harder. But if you raise your voice to me, I shut down or I get aggressive. Because at a certain point in my life, I had to decide I was no longer going to let someone do that to me. And so I had this very quiet personality. But at the same time, if you came at me, I would be very aggressive. I really didn't mesh with the wrestling team. And what ended up happening is when I left when I was 13 years old, I never really dealt with it. I was like a guy who got out of a prison camp. I was just so ecstatic to be out of that situation that I never dealt with any of it mentally. Then I went off to college by myself and suddenly I couldn't sleep at night. And suddenly I was starting to get bouts of depression and I was starting to have issues with my teammates and I was starting to have issues with my roommates and I was starting to not go to class because I wasn't sleeping at night and my grades started to go down. And like from 13 to 19 years old, I had the best time ever. And all of a sudden now, my mental abilities and everything just crashed. And suddenly it's like I had to learn that that kind of stuff that I had to deal with when I was younger was not something I could ignore. And so I was forced to drop out of college and move back in with my father, who now I was very frustrated with because I was a man. I was one of the best wrestlers in the country. And now I'm back to being a scared little kid. And I'm thinking, you'd put me through this, even though he didn't. My whole family shut down or whatever. And then I really didn't know what I wanted to do with myself because I blew my college wrestling career. I failed some of my classes, so my GPA tanked and stuff like that. And I was like, what am I going to do? I cannot tell you why, but randomly I decided to try a fight. And so I went to some bar and they said, hey, we'll give you $500 to fight this guy. And so I was like, okay, I need 500 bucks. I had no money. And I walked out there and I knocked him out in like five seconds. 
And because of my wrestling background and how hard I trained and everything, I kept doing this. And so the next guy went in, knocked him out. Next guy, I went in, knocked him out. Next guy, I went in, knocked him out. And I was like, wait a minute. Maybe this failure of my wrestling career is actually just the beginning step to something better. And so I decided to really take that mentality and switch it over into fighting. Now I had something to work for. Again, this isn't my counseling session or whatever, but that led to me having a better mindset, which led to me dealing with the things as a kid, which led to me becoming more of a man, which led to a reconstruction of my relationship with my father and later with my mother, who I hadn't spoken to in years. So fighting having that direct goal and dealing with all these things is what dragged me out of that depression and that situation that I hadn't dealt with. And then one day I woke up and I was a professional fighter. My God, that is an amazing story. And I appreciate you sharing it. I'm curious, you clearly dealt with childhood trauma, which created a switch in you of this, I'm going to defend and protect myself and not feel that pain. When you step into the ring, I don't know if it's changed over time, Do you just turn yourself into this is the enemy and I have to destroy them? Or do you have empathy or how do you think about the other person? Or when you hurt someone, what happens? I think about it very differently than that. So to me, I'm not really facing a person. Really, I'm just facing a challenge. I know what this guy does. He's trying to hurt me. I'm going to try to hurt him more. I never really worried about the pain because I've dealt with pain my whole life. Also, I'm worried about his failure because I trained so hard to get there. And so some people need motivation in their life. People are motivated differently. Some people need to be screamed at. Some people need to fear for their life in order to fight correctly. I'm not that person. So I look at it as more like an emotionless serial killer would look at it. I'm just going to the target, face him, deal with it. And then afterwards, I actually feel quite bad. Because I know how hard that guy trained. I know how much he put into it. I know how unfair fans and life is when you lose. All of a sudden, one day, you're the coolest guy in the world. And the next day, you lose and you're a sucker. After I'm done with beating somebody, I don't feel good about it. I'm happy. I accomplished my goal. But I really try to stick away from looking at anyone as an enemy. Just because I'm an empathic person. I don't want anyone to feel bad. But... When it comes time to put that switch in and to beat somebody up, I have no problem doing it. Is it common that UFC fighters have traumatic childhoods? I can't say common because I don't know. I don't go around asking people about their childhoods. But there are a certain group of people that are more likely to be athletes because they're from somewhere or from some situation in which the economic advantages of things like having parents that cared about you or having someone that was somewhat financially savvy in their family teach them or having any connections anywhere. And so the only way that these type of kids can get noticed is through athletics, because maybe they are really smart. But how smart do you have to be when you're in 10th grade and everyone's reading at a fifth grade level? You're going to be smart, right? But nobody's going to give a crap. The only way that you can get noticed is through some type of athletic event or some type of violent event or whatever. And so as they get noticed, those are the type of people that are more willing or more forced into the fight game, as opposed to someone who has other options. We're going to get into the success you've had in your life. And as a parent, 
would you encourage or want your kids to fight? No, I would hope not. And I have two girls and I really don't want them to fight. Mainly because I know how hard the game is and I know how expendable the people are. If you show up to a fight and you win the fight, you know, you get two checks. If you show up and you lose the fight, you get one check. What kind of job is like that where you get paid half if you lose? It's such a stressful life. It's such a stressful way of being. I certainly don't want my children to have to deal with that kind of stress and stuff. But would I not let them? No, if they really wanted to, I would let them. It's just I don't think people understand how hard of a game it is. I don't think they understand the work ethic. Traders might understand it or investors might understand it more, but I don't think people in life understand how random things are. I don't think they understand it's not just about being a good fighter. You have to have the personality that at the time is appealing to people because sometimes people like nice guys, sometimes people like assholes. There's a lot of randomness in all this. And so it's a hard life. It's a life that you're not very appreciated for. You have to get a lot of luck in order to get title shots and you have to have moments to where when you're at your best, you have a situation to be seen. And so all kinds of things that you have no control over can affect that. And so I would really not like my children to fight. But if they really wanted to, I told them, as long as they can beat me up, then they can do it. So we're putting on the gloves that day, and I'm coming for them. And if they can beat me up, then I'll give them a free pass to go. I want to ask you a question about an interview that deeply affected me because it was a moment where I think it was just after a fight and the way you were speaking, you clearly had evolved as a person. But leading into that, I don't know if you ever watched Joe Rogan and Rick Rubin. There's a great podcast I recommend to everyone. Rick Rubin's one of the most creative geniuses of all time. They're actually talking about music and Rogan's obviously a UFC fan. And for me, I respect UFC, but I didn't totally understand. I know friends that are deeply into it, have all these opinions and views on the fighters, but I don't understand it as well. But there's this moment where Rick Rubin tells Joe that his passion outside of music is wrestling. And Rick's making this point that it's all about storytelling. It's all about characters. And Joe's like, that you, it's an art form and the best fighters win. And so this gets to this point of, I think when it comes to finance and trading, and I think this applies so broadly to so many careers where people say, I want to work in a meritocracy. I want to be judged on my skills. But so much of that, even if it's an area that's more meritocracy, there's still humans, there's still favoritism, there's still storytelling. In this interview, basically you're coming to the point of, the first half of your career was be the best fighter, kick the guy's ass, the best fighter should win. And you're moving up the rankings. I think you got to seventh and it's your turn to fight Connor. And that would be life-changing. And the next night you wake up and they move you to nine because it didn't fit the storyline, which sounds more like wrestling than it does what I thought the <laughs> UFC was of the toughest guy fights the other guy. So walk me through that thing because I think it's such a big point. I obviously came from a wrestling background and I have a very strong wrestling ability. When I got to the UFC, obviously my ability was more geared towards wrestling because that's where I came from. And so I was an exceptional grappler, but I wasn't a great striker. Although I hit hard and stuff like that, my background was wrestling. I won two or three fights in a row. What happened is the UFC, there was another guy, I'm not going to say his name, but there was another guy who was at the top and then he fell off a little bit. And so they needed a tune-up thing to make him look good. And so they're like, this kid's 3-0 and in the UFC. We'll give him this guy. He'll beat him up, and then we'll be good. They brought him in there, and then I demolished him. <laughs> but I didn't demolish him in the way that they liked. And so essentially, they were like, that was boring, and you beat our guy. 
And so this isn't really what I wanted to do. And I ended up winning two or three more fights after that. So I had won six or seven in a row and I had a draw. And then on Christmas Eve, I'll never forget this day. I was with my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. And I get a call from my manager and my manager says, they cut you. And I was like, what? He's like, the UFC cut you. You're done. We're going to have to look for a different organization. And I was like, what do you mean they cut me? I haven't even lost. I'm doing great. Like, you can't cut me. They did. And I was devastated. Essentially, that was my first lesson in life that winning is not everything. There was a couple of times where they put the camera in front of my face right after a fight. And it made me uncomfortable. Being in the public spotlight made me uncomfortable because I am a confident person now. But when I was younger, I carried around my childhood with a deep insecurity. It took me a long time to be able to just really let go when the camera turned on. And actually now I'm quite good in front of a camera. But at that point in my life, I didn't have those skills. And I thought that I could make up with it with just sheer hard work and determination. I promise you, I work harder than anybody. But I thought that that would get me somewhere. And it didn't. It failed utterly and miserably. And so I was pouting at my house. I had no idea what to do. I didn't have any alternatives for a job. I thought I was doing well. I had just bought a house. I'm like, how am I going to pay for this thing? I didn't know what to do. And a couple of weeks later, a very high profile fight fell through and nobody would take it because nobody was going to fight this guy on short notice. And so they called me. They said, hey, you want your job back? <laughs> I was probably 30 pounds overweight. I had just been sitting in my house crying and eating Cheetos. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I better start running now. And then in two weeks, maybe I could stop. I'll lose 30 pounds. But I lost the weight and I went out. I didn't train a day for this fight. I wasn't ready for it. Something came over me was like, there's no way that you can perform at your best. You know that. But these MFers, they want exciting. They want someone to go out there and be a showstopper. I'll show them that I can do that. And so I went out there and I was in one of the best slugfests ever. There was blood everywhere where it was going crazy. And I ended up winning the first round. We went out with the second round and we're going crazy. And I got this huge cut and they ended up stopping the fight for the cut. And I was like, man, I lost the fight. And now I probably for sure don't have a job. And I left the stadium and I get a phone call. I pick it up and I'm like, hey, how you doing? And it's someone from the EOC. And they, they were like, listen, Nick, that was amazing. You definitely secured your job here. Not saying sorry, but we underestimated you essentially. And let's do it this way. And from that day forward, there were many fights and many situations to where I was put in a position to where I could win a certain way. But if I happened to do it that way, my job might be at stake. And so I had to switch my mind frame around as to become more of an entertainer versus more of a sport participant. It's not just about winning the game. It's not just there's a lot more to life. And I started to look at it from the other side. If there's not people in those seats, there is no fighting. It is an entertainment business. And you have to accept that. Whether you think that's fair or that's how it should be, it doesn't matter what you think. That's life. And so that's really the lesson that I learned from that situation. And as I went there, I had to work on my striking. I had to do it. And the interview you're talking about, 
I put on a flawless performance in striking against some people that thought would be a better striker than me. And I ended up kicking him in the head. He almost did a backflip. So that's that evolution that you saw in the interview. I think that's so relevant, even coming from the world of Wall Street and finance, there'd be people that would get promotions and other people that would be upset and claim they want a meritocracy. And when people tried to make it personal, I would always say, don't hate the player, hate the game, that this structure, this game you're playing in the UFC, I guess for me at that level, the game wasn't trying to figure out who the best fighter is. It's who's the most entertaining, who's going to sell at stadiums, who's going to get people excited and whatever people think blood might be more intriguing and more exciting and more violent than two guys on the ground rolling around. There's a difference though, because this is where the luck is involved. Sometimes it doesn't matter how you win because in other countries, they will support you no matter what, because they're more obsessive about in America, the guy will cheer for the other guy from the other country. It's kind of depressing. But if you're from Azerbaijan or whatever, it doesn't matter what you do. They're cheering for you. Yeah, Khabib is one of the best, and those guys are really good fighters, so I'm not saying anything bad about them, but it doesn't matter how they win because they were born there. So there's a lot of people born in the middle of nowhere in Dagestan that aren't so lucky, but the ones that happen to be good fighters and have their whole country behind them, that gives you the situation to where you can be yourself and you can fight the way that God made you to fight, but at the same time, you have the fans at your back. And so that's what I'm talking about as far as there there is randomness in life because where you're born, who your parents are, what's your background, who's going to be on your team when it's your time to win these fights, all that matters. And so that's the business side and also the luck side of the fight game. I want to go back to a point you made about insecurity and work ethic because it's something I've thought about when people have talked about this, that I'll meet people that are hard charging or driving or worked really, really hard. And usually there's some insecure part that I'm not good enough or I'm afraid of something. And as you got past that and became more confident and more comfortable in your own skin, did you ever connect those dots and think that maybe it will take away from that diehard work that you were working because there was that little kid who had questions and pushed himself to levels no other person could because of that pain? Is that pain a, a source of drive? Yeah, 100%. There's actually many studies, and it's one of the things you learned, because I trained some SEALs and uh, people that work in special forces and stuff like that. And it's one of the things they teach you when you go to the CIA, that people from broken homes are usually insanely hard workers. And so a lot of times they'll recruit those type of people for special forces and stuff like that with the idea knowing that they will have this drive to be the best. I think every person is different, but there's this psychological need that's been denied to those people. Really the only way that they can achieve it. Most people are born like my kids can do nothing to make me not love them. The deal is done. They can be the littlest shits in the whole world. Love those dorks more than life itself. But when I was a kid, I didn't have that. And so there's a brokenness in you that makes you have to do something to work, to go for it. But I don't think it's conscious, right? I think it's a subconscious thing. And it took me 35 years to really understand what happened in all these situations in my life. I come from it from a very different perspective now. Once you've made a move on the game of life, you cannot go back. And it doesn't matter if it was unfair. It doesn't matter if it was wrong. It doesn't matter anything. All you can do is proceed forward with the game. And the most important thing that I think in life, and 
it's a little philosophical and stuff, but essentially we all are screwed from the beginning because we're going against a force and an intelligence that's far superior to our own. The moment we sat down at the game of life, what do we get? We always lose. At the end of the day, you lose. You're dead. You can't avoid it. And we all have this picture of life that if I achieve this, I will have won. But anyone who's ever achieved anything valuable knows that that value goes away rather quickly. The first time I made money in fighting, I made $20,000. I can't describe to you how much money that was to me. I was rich then. If I had $20,000 today, I would be a crying, panicking mess. The goals change. And once you achieve it, it's worthless. And so there's a long-winded way to say that the point of life is not really to win the game because you're going to lose anyways. The goal is just to play beautifully. The goal is to just understand that you're against a force and a nature. And if you enjoy the process of the game, that's where you'll find joy in life. And so that's why I like working hard because I like waking up at four in the morning and I like making quantitative models and I like studying math that I wasn't able to study when I was a kid. And I like doing these things because it makes me feel like I'm going for something. And I know regardless of if I make millions or if I one day start my own hedge fund or whatever, it doesn't matter. Really, it's just the process of learning. And if you ever watched a movie, no one ever watches a movie that says, oh, this guy grew up in a rich neighborhood, had a finance dad. His dad sent him to college. He got a hedge fund job. And there you go. That would be a boring ass movie. I always try to think about my life like that as if if I make a bad mistake, who cares? Think of the comeback story or think of how cool it would be when someone asked. I thought about this a year ago when I tried to learn quantitative finance. I thought, how cool would it be if I told someone I was able to hire a math tutor and read all these books and put up a quantitative model? And I thought it would take me five years. It took me like a year. And I was like, how cool would that be? Ghetto ass kid behind in school, does all these things. And then he makes that. The idea was do broken children produce better people like that or more hardworking people. And I think it's true. But I think that's because they self-consciously get obsessed with the process of getting better to feel whole. And when really that's the trick to life. So it's like a cheat code to get more motivated or whatever. I think there's unbelievable amount of wisdom in how you think about it and how you handle it today. There's been so many examples of people that were in business and apparently in fighting in other areas too, that had a lot of adversity at a young age from a variety of things. And that is what parted them to go off in a path and then that you get to this next generation, like your daughters who didn't grow up in that and you've worked really hard so they would never have to. And do you think about their drive and their motivation? I do. I've done a lot of studying about this, right? About people who are successful and people who aren't. Bad childhood is not actually a harbinger of success. The outliers are larger than normal, but the vast majority of them tank and have horrible lives. It's not like, hey, if you beat your kid, they're going to grow up great. 95% of the time, they turn into drug addicts and are dead before they're 20. Half the people that grew up in my house are dead when I was a kid. But at the same time, this is what I'm talking about is you can't go back. I wish I had a good childhood, but I don't. I still have nightmares about this stuff, which is embarrassing to say, but it's true. Because I'm a grown-ass man. And stuff that happened to me when I was a kid it still gets to me every once in a while. But 
what a gift I have over most parents who don't understand what their kids want. I know what a kid wants. And it has nothing to do with things or video games or vacations or any of that. Every day when I wake up, I always tell my kids how much I love them. I always give them a hug. They're very confident people because I always make sure to do these little things that I know seem small, but when denied to you can ruin your whole life. I have so many advantages over other people in that way. I have so many disadvantages as well, but I have those advantages. And so with that, I feel like I can build my kids up to be good people without them having to deal with that extraordinary stress. And so I do not think it's a good idea to be hard on your kids. I actually think people should be more loving, over-the-top loving, because you'll be surprised at how hard someone will work when they feel like they're really appreciated. Jesus. I was like in front of a UFC fighter and I was going to try to act tough and puff my chest out. Now I'm going to start fucking crying. So, man, (laughs) it's not expected. No, I think you're a great dad. And clearly your life is a journey. That's a lesson for a lot of people. Let's move to the transition to the finance out, the moving to the quant (laughs) models. The idea that you wanted to do this. It's interesting to me because I think a stereotypical thing to your point was my dad wasn't in finance. I didn't go to the right colleges. I always had the same story chip on my shoulder that I think everyone noticed from the minute they met me that I was going to try to prove the world wrong. You said you're moving to finance. Was it hard for people to take you seriously? Had you always been interested in it? Obviously, your education had been stifled because of you know leaving and your focus on the sport. So when you thought about it, was it daunting or was I don't even know what I don't know? So let's just try to figure this out. It was very daunting. I had no idea what I was doing. So when I first made money in fighting was 2008, 2009, I had some money. And I seemed to be the only person in the world with money at the time. Everyone else's money was evaporating left and right. And people are like, I lost all my money in the market. And so that was the worst time to make some money because it was like, I'm not fucking putting my money anywhere near finance. But A problem I had in my fight career was I worked too hard. And athletics is one of the few things that there really is a cutoff to how hard you can work. If you work out more than four hours a day, you will get sick. If you do too much, you will get injured. And I started to have this series of getting sick, getting injured, because I was an obsessive person. And so I needed distractions. It was always something in me that wanted to know about the stock market. One of the things that we're not going to get into here is I had a really hard time reading when I was young, but that turned out to be because I'm severely dyslexic. I still, I have a very hard time reading fast. I needed a way to learn about finance. And so my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, eventually I kept buying books, but I was not able to get through them that much. And I would forget it when I started. And I just, in a moment of desperation, I went to her and I said, hey, listen, I want to know about things, but I can't read these books fast enough. Will you read them to me at night? And she agreed to do it. And so every night she would read me the books and then I would study. And within six months, I was able to learn what takes a normal person three years. Like I was able to learn so fast. And once I was able to learn how to do that, I was able to really just excel in finance. And then so one day I was like, I've done all this studying. This was 2017 or something like that. So I started buying some ETFs and I started just basic investing. Then one day I'm like, no, this isn't what you dreamed of. We dreamed of being like a day trader. We dreamed of doing this right. And so I got the courage up 
So Christmas Eve happens, the market just tanks. And I bought freaking everything. I put my entire net worth into the market at that time, just on the idea that I was going to be a trader. And the market didn't go down for months. It just went up every day. And I thought I was the king of the world because I think by the end of that six month period, I had made six or 700%, just sheer luck. But then I got the taste of what you can do in finance if you are on the right path. And then thankfully, I knew I was, there's no way you're this good at this. You didn't just get into fighting and get good. You got fucking lucky. And so I took all the money out and I was like, now we're going to really learn finance. I went on Twitter and I reached out to very high profile people and I said, hey, I will trade you anything if you can teach me about markets. I will come mow your lawn. I will do anything. And I'm not going to say the names, but very, very high level people said, of course, I'll help you. And they were so gracious. And you get this idea that these Wall Street guys are arrogant or whatever. It couldn't be farther from the truth. And some people, it was probably impossible to get a meeting with them. I sent them a Twitter DM and we talked daily and they helped me with the markets. And that's how I learned how to function in the stock market. And so where did you go? Because I mean, I think the common refrain is that usually... If you look at people who do this professionally for a living, you know, we have a lot of resources, a lot of things. And the advice is that this usually ends really badly. Yes, some people have the ability and willingness to do it, but it takes a lot of commitment and discipline, which in no way I'm questioning. But for you, as you started to turn this into your next career, how did you start to expand into the markets? How did you think about which asset classes you were going to trade or how you were going to manage risk? Or how did you develop your own investment process? Well, thankfully, the first shot at it, I got lucky. And so I was able to create quite a good bankroll. And so in that process, I learned what I liked and what I didn't. Right now, the main thing I trade are I spread trade the VX markets versus ES. I trade the sulfur whites and the reds. I have 17 future markets that I just look at to bet on macro events. And that's what I trade. I trade those main markets. I trade some interest rates, I trade the VIX futures, the VIX butterflies and stuff to hedge against my ES longs. And then I go through that gas, the dollar, a couple of currency pairs, just stuff like that. I tried to create a macro investing picture, but with a small enough amount of markets that I can actually afford. I'm a retail trader. I don't have institutional money. So I can only bet on so many things. I can only really have four or five non-correlated bets on at a time. So I can't be crazy. I guess that's how I picked the markets. And really, I just tried to see if I like something. I tried day trading the ES. It turned out I didn't like it. I didn't like being in that many trades. I didn't like losing that often. Because if you're going to trade that short of a term, you're going to lose a lot. It was like, oh, I'll try to have a high win rate. Well, then all of a sudden I had a high win rate and I was losing money. It's like, how can I win so often and lose all my money? And then I had to learn how to manage a bankroll. And a lot of it comes down, at least for me, it came down to studying gambling. So I studied a lot of gambling literature. I studied a lot about how to manage bankrolls. I started a lot. And then, as I said, I was lucky enough to reach out to smart people who taught me stuff. And then I was able to find which markets spoke to me because markets act differently. And some of them are good for others and some of them aren't so good for people. And so I just have been on a mission to find that. And to be honest with you, until I would say about a year ago, I was a ship without a rudder. I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. But I feel like I finally found the markets and 
thankfully, like I said, I was able to make enough money at the beginning that when I really reached out and messed up, I was playing with the house's money. And so the mistakes that I made, I was lucky enough to have the money to make them. And so that was how I was able to learn. Luck played a big part. And then also just being willing to reach out and try many things and see what worked. When people have big wins, there's usually a couple things that happen. Sometimes they become very risk averse and they only want to play with their winnings because what happens is they can get hyper aggressive because they treated the term house money like, oh, I didn't have this money. So now I'm going to really bet it. And when you're in a bubble, crypto's going up and people are making money off of animal pictures. Suddenly you're placing much larger bets. Your ability to take risk is higher. When you are nervous, you're going to get shot or lose your job. Like sitting on a trading desk, you know, you get cut. If you start to lose money, they tell you to go home. Pressure to keep making money every day can be extreme. That can lead people sometimes to paralysis where they can't do a trade because they're terrified of loss or they're doubling down and they're making one bet and relying on hope. It can lead to very dangerous outcomes. And so I think when I think about drawdown and risk aversion, I think I'm trying to get to without how you think about risk management, how you think about how position sizing, when you're getting into something, when you're getting out, how much you're willing to lose. I am very risk averse by nature. As far as managing my risk, managing my bankroll, I mean, I have very strict measures about how many lots I bet, how much I'm willing to lose. The stops are set. Everything is good, except there's a little thing broken that when I see a good trade, I'm going to take it and I'm going to bet big on it. And I think that's what can separate that P&L, get you that cushion when those hit. This is why I hated day trading, ultra short-term day trading. Because if you're playing for a tick in the bond futures, it's just like, oh, great, I made a thousand bucks. Oh, great, I lost 500 bucks. Oh, great, I made a thousand bucks. That mindset was shitty to me. And so that's not how I want to manage my risk. I want to just play the game, win some, lose some, win some, lose some, staying fresh, knowing what's happening in all the markets. And then when I see my opportunity, I'm not out of shape. I'm not cold. I'm going to take it big. If luck is on my side, then I feel like it is. And I do a lot of research and I work harder than anybody. And I know when I take this trade that I have the edge. I don't take too many big trades. My main trade, I would say 95% of my trades are extremely low risk. And then 5% are big, big, big swings. You had a tweet. I think you were walking around at the casino. Other people have had this. I've had it when I go to Vegas. I just look and I'm like, I just don't. I mean, I know what people are doing. I understand the joy, but it's amazing to watch people. And A topic I've long been fascinated with is society's perception of speculating versus investing and where those lines are. That casino, I at least can say, look, you can print the mathematical odds of losing and the negative value here of sitting here. But when you think about trading and the difference between gambling, speculating, investing, how do you think about the difference between just taking a risk where it's a hope and a prayer versus feeling like you actually have an edge? Investing, I think all trading is gambling. And I think that goes back to why certain portfolio managers get ahead when they're not as good as traders, because life is about telling a story. And if someone's going to give you all their money, you have to tell them a good story because all kinds of things can happen that you have no control over. You can invest in the best company there's ever been. It could have the best cash flows. The price momentum is off the charts. You could have everything in this thing. And The CEO is caught with a hooker in a bathroom and that thing tanks and you lose all your money. You can't account for that. There's so many things in life that you can't account for. And so 
I actually think that if you're an advantage player in Vegas, I actually think your odds are a little better than investing because the <laughs> stock market, so many more things can happen. There's only 52 cards in a deck or seven decks or whatever. You know mathematically the odds that you have going in. When you're playing poker and you have aces, you know the exact odds. You know how many outs this guy probably has. Whereas in investing, it's just a big world. But we convince ourselves that it's not gambling. And I think when you accept the gambling mindset, and really the only thing you control is your risk management, your bankroll, then that's where you allow luck to be on your side as opposed to luck being the disadvantage that people think it is. If a young person were to reach out to you or DM you, I'm not saying everyone should, but if someone were to DM you. I DM everybody and they've helped me. My DMs are always open. You can talk to me about life. You can talk to me whatever you want. They're wide open. Send me a message. That's very nice. And so if someone did and said they wanted to get started and begin the path that you began, where would you send them or how would you structure what you'd want them to learn now that you're the teacher? I do the same thing to everybody. I have a series of a couple books that I say, read these books. And that does two things. One, it shows me that the person has actual desire. The first thing is, are you committed or are you pretending? Because I'm telling you now, there are very few things in life that you can get into that are more painful and hard to do than trading. It's a miserable fucking existence sometimes. Right? It's a terrible way to make money. You can make a lot of money, but you're going to pay for it. And that's one of the mind Fs of trading is that it's not really all that complicated. It's just about dealing with enormous amounts of pain. And thankfully, I come from a background where I dealt with a lot of pain. So I've got a lot of practice in it. <laughs> There's a question our mutual friend, Sam, wanted me to ask you, what's worse, getting punched in the face or buying a 30-year treasury bond? But I think I'll ask it a different way, which is, how do you compare the two careers? It was always interesting to me. We would post a role for a portfolio analyst or research analyst and trader, and trader always would get more resumes because Hollywood made it sound sexy. There was this thing where young people thought traders were the thing that they wanted, and they didn't understand how hard how challenging a role playing with the markets can be. They just see, oh, this seems like an easy way to make money. How do you compare the pain of UFC and training and the ups and downs with trying to be in the markets and being in them on a regular basis? They're extremely similar. The one thing that's different is that the fighting pain is both longer and shorter. So essentially, you train for months to fight one fight. And then if you lose that fight, you lose half your paycheck, you lose your career. It's such a bad outcome. It's, it's the ultimate bad beat. And so I think on a fighting sense, losing the fight is worse than losing a trade. But just the constant nature of the water torture of losing multiple trades where like you're in a good trade and just goes wrong for a reason you can't control or you're just on a cold streak or you're unlucky or you don't even know half the time. That's part of the sin. Am I unlucky or am I just shit? I think the little nicks and knacks of trading are much harder to deal with, where I think I'm fighting the big stage is much harder to deal with than being a trader. So I think they both have their unique spots, but they're both equally miserable. And I wouldn't suggest that anybody do it. But I know that when you tell someone like me that, I get excited. So I'm sure there's a couple of people out there that want to do it. And I think it's ultimately rewarding. And as long as you're willing to feel like a fool and you're willing to reach out and ask for help, I think it's one of the best professions a person can do. I usually try to talk people out of it, but it does lead to 
a lifelong game that you can play and never know if you're getting better or not. And some people can find it very frustrating and other people can find it very rewarding. Nick, I could talk to you for a while. The last question I would ask you is the picture of you when you retired from UFC fighting, I think is burned into my head. I think you almost lost your vision. You were beaten up really badly. You decided to walk away. I'm curious about what that feels like to walk away from something that you worked so hard for. And if in your mind, do you have a pre-scripted ending story to what it would take for you to walk away from this next chapter of your life as a trader? I have no plan to walk away from trading. I've done three things at a high level. I wrestled and I sucked at it. When I got there in ninth grade and I had just started wrestling, I told him that I was going to be an Olympic wrestler. And they all laughed at me like I was a complete idiot. Within a year, I could hold that kid down with one finger. And so I have a very burn the bridges mentality. I'm going to be good at it. And there's no reason I can't. I have a high enough IQ. I have a high enough work drive. And I did the same thing with fighting. I threw my whole wrestling career away. I messed up bad. I dropped out of college. I moved back in with my parents. I had a nervous breakdown pretty much. And I said, hey, I'm going to be one of the best fighters in the world. And people were like, are you out of your mind? Go back to school. Are you stupid? I said, I don't care what you guys say. It's what I'm doing. And so I did it that way. And it's the same way with trading. The reason that I had to go out of fighting is because I got poked in the eye and I lost my vision. That's a hard thing to deal with. But like I said, man, what more can we do? We can't go back. We can't change anything. All we can do is enjoy the motion going forward. And I know because I've lost it all multiple times in my life that you can get it back. And so if I try trading and it ends up to be a miserable failure, first of all, it can't be a miserable failure because the house I'm sitting in is paid for. The car I drive is paid for. I didn't lose anything. I got stuff. If I lose it all, well, screw it. I at least got the house. Can I lose? Of course. Could I be delusional? Of course. Could I be trying to do something that I have no business doing? Of course. But what the hell else am I going to do? That's awesome. Nick, this has been one of my favorite interviews. I really appreciate you taking the time today. If you enjoyed this episode, check out joincolossus.com. There you will find every episode of this podcast, along with transcripts, our weekly newsletter, and resources to continue your learning.